I want to talk to you today about it's a new day. It's a new day. And I want to read that text of Scripture again from the contemporary English version of the Bible. And I like how it makes this plain. Paul writes and says, I have not yet reached my goal, and I am not perfect. But Christ has taken hold of me. So I keep running and struggling to take hold of the prize. My friends, I don't feel that I've already arrived, but I forget what is behind, and I struggle for what is ahead. I run toward the goal so that I can win the prize of being called to heaven. What a great, wonderful scripture. And uh, I want to really talk to you today about some things and kind of bring a new understanding to what remains. We know that we are living in times that most people would say, most conservatives would say, most Christians would say, are very challenging. The times are very challenging. But I want to flip that around on its head. I, I agree with some of the, I agree with uh, Brother Rodney Shaw, his editorial in the forward uh, this month, and some things that he said, and I will quote some of, uh, some of this article. But he said, In my lifetime I have witnessed the moral decline of America. I can remember when society's core values were shared with the church, but those days are long past. We're no longer battling the good old-fashioned vices of booze and, and, and women and shoot-em-up movies. The moral issues of our day are cutting to the quick of our existence and identity as human beings. There is a frontal assault on humanity. Earlier this year, Belgium passed a law approving child euthanasia. Belgium and the Netherlands both have legal adult euthanasia. This, this is chilling when I think about 70 years ago in very close to the same area, Nazi Germany Adolf Hitler started that whole euthanasia genocide program. And now, not even a century later, it is back and visiting us again. And it's because two scholars recently argued in the Journal of Medical Ethics in favor of afterbirth abortions for the same reasons used to justify pre-birth abortions. The Supreme Court of the United States has refused to hear an appeal from Christian photographers who were fined and admo admonished by the New Mexico Supreme Court for declining to work a same-sex marriage ceremony. And uh, the, the left has already moved the debate to issues of gender identity, cross-gender, tran transgender, bigender, all sorts of distortions of the image of God and so far right now, the debate for homosexuality is in the rearview mirror. That might be said to be challenging to the church. But the startling truth is this. Conservatism is unsustainable in a free society unless it's inspired and sustained by revival. That's where the church comes in. That's where the gospel comes in. That's where the message comes in. That's where worship, that's where you and I plug in and make the difference. Given a choice, unregenerate humans will always choose wrongly. That pattern began in Genesis, the third chapter. Not only does the witness of the Scripture bear this out, but religious history. Since the New Testament has shown that the Christian nation idea has never worked out. We've had great revivals, but these were primarily among people of Christian belief with a shared morality. 
We're no longer a Christian nation in the strictest sense, and we certainly do not have a shared morality. Despair could easily be the order of the day, especially if the fabled small-town America is the vision of patriotism, and patriotism is our ultimate commitment. So where does this leave us, and what shall we do? He goes on to write, If our primary identity is a Christian, and if our primary occupation is to be ministers of the gospel, then we have every reason to be optimistic. The early church lived in a pagan society and saw tremendous revival. The church will be triumphant whether it shares moral values with a society or not. The church's success is not contingent on the moral condition of the world around it. I might add, rather, that the church's success is contingent despite all the conditions surrounding it. Finally, he closes by saying, Be filled with the Spirit. Merely gathering for moral discourse will neither empower nor convert sinners. The Bible is not a moral code book intended for debate. It is the revealed will of God intended to lead us into a transformative relationship with God. The result of studying the Bible should be a spirit-filled life. We must be spirit-filled and the spirit must move freely in our services with demonstration and power. Anything less is part and parcel of the problem. If our whole nation regrettably crumbles, I would still be a minister of the gospel. I would still have a lifelong calling. I would still be a dealer of hope. I am not that fearful. I think we just as easily could see the rise of a great revival reported on social media in the morning. Hashtag carry on. (laughs) Praise God. I happen to agree with those sentiments. Even though, as a pastor and as Christians, we feel the moral pressure from our culture and the decay and the opposition politically and in every way to everything the Bible teaches us that are sound principles upon which to build a life and a family. Even though we feel all of that, I come to you to remind you of what Jesus said. What he told Peter when he said, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. Everybody say, prevail. Prevail against it. The rock to which he was referring was the revelation of his divinity, of his divine nature, that he was God manifest in the flesh. That is the greatest truth. And it results in us knowing the greatest name, the name of Jesus, the revealed name of God on this earth. Amen. By which when we speak, it can produce results. When we speak it, healings can take place. When we speak it, devils can listen and be cast out. When we speak it, blind eyes can be opened, deaf ears can be unstopped. And dead babies can be raised again when we call the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. As dark as the moral climate around us is. And the sweep of great culture change that is upon us. I came here to tell you this morning that... It is not we who are the ones being challenged. We are not challenged. The Holy Ghost is never challenged. 
If we have His Spirit in us, greater is He that is in us than He that is in the world. Hallelujah. And the enemy might come into the boxing ring swaggering and wearing a great big hoodie and a great big sign on his front and back. And, and he might come in uh, uh, acting like he's got all the power and he's intimidating. But the champion who's been in the fight before doesn't need to have all that stuff on him. Doesn't need to carry all that attitude into the ring. He just needs to walk in there and stand his stance and take up his fight. Hallelujah. So, you got it wrong. If you think the church is the one who is being challenged. To picture the true church of Jesus being pushed into the corner of defense is wrong. It's wrong. And when the church was persecuted at its fiercest, it was at its finest. And it was at its strongest. When those gladly, those martyrs gladly laid down their life for the love of Jesus who had called them to eternal life. When they did so willingly and without objection, when they surrendered their life, when it would have been easy to recant and deny him, when they went to the cross, to the graves, to the lions, to the gladiators, to whatever, when they went to the gun, the sword, or the bullet, or the fire, whenever they did it and gave their life up rather than give up their faith in God, the church was its strongest and finest when it seemed pushed in the corner and threatened and it looked like the enemy would prevail against it, it was in those moments. When a Saul who thought he was doing the right thing saw in the eyes of the man whom he gave will and gave consent to have stoned to death, when he saw in the eyes and on the face of Stephen the vision of rapture and glory as he beheld Jesus in heaven, when Saul saw that, it never left him. That image would haunt him, and it would haunt him and drive him. And to snuff it out, he tried to to persecute other Christians and drug them before the court and the law and imprisoned them and saw many of them died. What was he doing? Trying to snuff out something that was changing him on the inside. So it is no wonder when, then, when Jesus addresses him on the road to Damascus and blinds him with that blinding light and speaks to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Amen. And Saul said, Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you persecuted. It's hard for you to kick against the ox goad, something that is pricking you, something that is used to drive the animal forward. Amen. Saul was being driven, amen, by a memory, by a conscience, by a vision, by a thing that was greater than his passion to serve God through Judaism and seeing Judaism prevail. Their passion was greater than his passion. He was willing to put them to death, but was he willing to die for what he believed? So even at our weakest, we are at our finest, and we are at our strongest. Satan, I'm sure, thought he triumphed, and he had won the day when Jesus gave up the ghost on the cross, said, 
It is finished. Into your hands I commend my spirit. Satan no doubt thought he had won. But he was in for a rude awakening three days later. Hallelujah. When all of the phones in hell began to ring off the hook. Amen. Do you know what's happening up here? He just got up and walked out of here. He walked out of here. Hallelujah. 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 The idea that sin is prevailing and that Satan is winning the day is just wrong. It's wrong. Jesus said in Matthew 16 and 18, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The Bible said in Matthew 27, 24, Pilate could prevail nothing against the, pre, the chief priest. And then it was in verse chapter 23, verse 23, the chief priest who prevailed. But why could not Pilate resist them? And why did their will overrule the governor from Rome, the procurator? Why? Why? For the same reason that Jesus said, well, I've called all of you, but has not one of you a devil? For the same reason that it was divinely ordained of God. And Jesus knew when he prayed, Father, amen, if it be your will, let this cup part from me, but not my will, your will be done. For the same reason that it was the will of God that Jesus die on the cross. That it must happen. That it had to happen. That's why the chief priest had to prevail against Pilate. And he could not win the day against him. But was it because sin won the day? Or was it because God's plan was being was prevailing over everything? The Pharisees despaired in John 12, 19. Perceive ye how we prevail nothing. The whole world is gone after him. They despaired as he prevailed. And they lost their grip on the people of Jerusalem and Judea as they began to follow Jesus. The evil spirit who prevailed against the seven sons of Siva in Acts 19.16. They prevailed against those Jews who did not have the Holy Ghost who are trying to cast demons out in the name of Jesus whom Paul preached. The reason why those spirits were able to prevail against those unsaved, unspirit-filled men was because they knew who the boss was. Amen. They knew who the boss was and who the boss wasn't. Amen. And they knew that these guys couldn't cast them out. Amen. Because they were borrowing authority they did not have. Which means that they respected the authority that is. They know very well who Paul is. And very well who Jesus is. They are going to stay out of those guys' way. Amen. But someone who doesn't have the authority, they're not afraid of that. Here's the destiny of the church. Acts 19 and 20 says, So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Amen. That's the destiny of the church. It was Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah in Revelations 5 and 5, who prevailed to open the book and loose the seven seals thereof. And finally, in Revelations 12 and 8, we see that Satan, that old dragon, and all of his angels prevailed not, and neither was their place found any more in heaven. Hallelujah. When I look at the word prevail, amen, that's Strong's Greek word number 5622, Ophelia, which means helpful, serviceable, 
advantageous, profitable, and better. So what that means is, amen, that Satan, and I say this to you, that in all of it, not one time in the New Testament do we find one scripture that uses this word prevail where Satan gets to win. Not one time does he get to have the advantage. Not one time does he get the better of it. Not one time is it to his profit. Amen. In all of the New Testament, amen, despite the battle that the church faces and fights, the prevailing side is with us. We are not challenged. We are the challengers. We are the challengers. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Because the bottom line is that as long as he who letteth will let until it be taken out of the way. Second Thessalonians 2 and 7, speaking about the coming of the wicked one, the Antichrist. But that Antichrist being prevented by something that lets or hinders him from coming until he be removed out of the way, which is a reference to the Holy Spirit's work on the earth. So long as that is the bottom line. Uh, so long as this world is in a battle, Satan still is operating on God's terms. It's on God's terms. Do you remember the story of Job? How that God said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Satan said, yes, God, I've considered him, but you put a hedge about him. If you will give me permission, remove the hedge and give me permission to touch him, I'll touch him. Amen. You see, Satan can't do anything without permission. He has to have permission. And though he looks like a roaring lion, that lion is old and his teeth have been pulled. Hallelujah. Because Jesus has the key of death and he can raise from the dead at will whom he chooses. He has the power. It is in his name to do that. And Satan can cover us like a roaring lion. I'm going to take your baby today. But in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Satan has to lose his hold. In the name of Jesus. Prayers are made for the sick. And the Bible says they shall recover. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Those in despair are comforted. In the name of Jesus. Anxiety and worry and fear melts away. In the name of Jesus. New hope. In the face of all despair rises. In the name of Jesus. Amen. I can make it through this day. And this trial. And this thing. In the name of Jesus. That devil who thought to win me. Who thought to take me. Who thought to challenge me. Has no authority over me. He doesn't. He thinks he can win. But he can't. Because what is in me will prevail. We will win as long as we hold fast to the faith. As long as we stand strong, we will win. Hallelujah, hallelujah. If you've come to church today tired, weary, bragging, 
dragging your wrists near your heels, weary and discouraged and defeated and trampled on and beaten up and worn out. Let me tell you, it's just a matter of flicking a switch in your spiritual mind. Hallelujah. If I could get you to see that you are the problem Satan is dealing with you because you are the problem. Because he worries about what you can do. He's afraid of you and what you can do and what you will represent. Little old weak you, he is scared of. He is afraid of. That's why he's expending that effort to try to destroy you and take away your life. Because as much as it looks like he might win, he can't win. If we don't let him, he can't win. Paul said it this way. He said, where sin abounds, his grace does much more abound. If the first century church could turn the world upside down, which is the claim that was made about them, it was a world where Rome ruled and the emperor was God. And his idol was everywhere. And, and uh, religious worship and patriotism went hand in hand. It really was God in country in those days because the God was the emperor. And you had to worship his idol and pay a heed to his cult. Amen. And not speak anything against him. Because if you did, you were dead on two counts. If they could turn the world upside down where slavery was legal and permissible and masters owned people and those slaves had to consent and yield their bodies to every conceivable abuse, immorality and wickedness their masters wanted to to take from them. They had to give it to them. Amen. If that could be the law of the land and the church could turn the world upside down in that day, what could it not do in this day? If the, if, oh, hallelujah. If in that world, fathers literally had the power of life and death over their children. It wasn't just a, a Bill Crosby, a Bill Cosby joke that said, if I brought you into the world, I could take you out. That was literally the case in those days. It was the law of the land in those days, that if a son displeased the father, the father could take his life. If they could turn the world upside down in those days, what might not happen by the church in these days? If prostitution was legal and was everywhere prevalent, and Roman bathhouses were the place where people went to wash and cleanse themselves because they had no bathrooms and everybody went there. And it was the place for the procurement of every vice and everything anybody could ever want could be found and bought there. Somebody was there waiting to sell you whatever it is you wanted. If the world could be changed in that climate, what might the church do today? I'm telling you, our culture has not challenged us like that church was challenged. But it isn't the culture that is the challenging thing. It is we who choose to stand up against the culture and say our lives will be transformed by the Word. And we don't care what you think. We don't care what you say. We don't care what you do. We don't care what your laws are. We don't care. We're going to live by this book. 
Hallelujah. We don't know what evil is yet. We haven't felt what real evil is yet. We're only moving in that direction. Hallelujah. Now, Paul said, I have not yet reached my goal. I am not perfect, but Christ has taken hold of me. I am apprehended of Christ. That means captured, taken hold. Christ has taken hold of me. So I keep running and struggling to take hold of the prize. I don't feel like I've already arrived, and I forget what is behind, and I struggle for what is ahead. Now, these words come after uh, the earlier chapters where Paul is writing to the church, and he's admonishing them about sin, turning their lives away from wrong things. And he lists a lot of these wrong things that people do, and that, that, that's a problem for us. And you cannot read the Bible without being indicted at some point. At some point... Uh, you see yourself here. You must see yourself here. This, this, is, this is something that I struggle with and need to get over. It's something that I need, amen, to put behind me. So Paul, uh, it, it, it seems hard at one point, it looks like, from what Paul is teaching, to really live a life of victory and power over sin. And yet Paul comes back to us with this idea. That I am not perfect. And that... I am running away from things, things that had a hold on me, things that were my yesterday. Like Brother Tim Smith sang in that song, amen, about having a heart to turn around, to embrace today, and to welcome tomorrow. Because with each new sunrise comes a new day of God's mercy and grace. And once we've come to the Lord and put something in our past under the blood, as far as God is concerned, it's done with, it's over and gone. And in this world and in this time when you cannot get away from your past mistakes because digital information will bring it out everywhere you go, you can't turn away from it. In this day and time, hallelujah, when the world will not give you a break, amen, it will not let you go and will not forget your past. Isn't it great to know that in the church with God there is no yesterday as far as He's concerned. Everything is new in the morning. It's a brand new day. Amen. To get up and live for God. A brand new day to walk with God. A new day. Hallelujah. So Paul said, I forget those things are which are behind me. And I run in the race to grab the prize that is before me. Because he has taken a hold of me. And I cannot escape his influence. Hallelujah. We get to have a spiritual do-over. Amen. That is only the privilege of the saved. It is only the privilege of God's people. The world doesn't know what it is like to have that. Paul would go on to say in Colossians 1, 21 through 23, along the same lines, You used to be far from God. Your thoughts made you his enemies. You did evil things, but his son became human and died. So God made peace with you, and now he lets you stand in his presence as people who are holy and faultless and innocent. But you must stay deeply rooted and firm in your faith. You must not give up the hope you've received when you heard the good news. It was preached to everyone on earth, and I myself became a servant of this message. Hallelujah. What is behind us is behind us. And what is before us 
is the beauty of life. I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm closing. I believe that the coming of the Lord is imminent. And as we look at world events and study the Bible, Bible prophecies, we can see there is a very alarming coincidence of these two factors joining up hands, coming together. Bible prophecy, current events. And so we do live in very frightening and scary times in that regard, but should not be for a child of God who's placed their faith and hope and trust in Jesus. The way to escape from all the trouble that is coming on this world is to be born again, as the Scripture says, of water and of spirit, which is the baptism in Jesus' name and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That is what it takes to get in the ark and to get out of all of this stuff. But I believe that just as in foreign missions and foreign countries where cultures have been steeped in centuries of demon worship and idol worship and sin, where there is no knowledge of the Bible, where people have turned from God and the Word, that when missionaries go there, there is immediate and powerful uh, response to the ministry of the Word and, and uh, healing, miraculous healings and wonderful conversions take place. And I believe it's because that whenever, uh, whenever you squ- it's like anything physical. If you were to take a physical object and put it under pressure, the heat of that object would, would uh, go up, the temperature would go up, and that object will begin to expand under pressure. And so pressure intensifies the energy that is involved in that thing physically. Well, I believe there is a, a parallel in the spirit world that whenever sin abounds, the pressure of wickedness is surrounding us, that there is a corresponding power of God that fights back, that comes back. And the more you squeeze God, the stronger might be the resistance of God to that. I've seen some people who get the Holy Ghost and uh, who were very strong, stubborn, willful people. But when they got the Holy Ghost, God just splattered it all over them. Amen. He just splattered them. Amen. He just knocked them out. Pow. Hallelujah. Amen. They got it in a powerful way because they had resisted in a powerful way. But now when they surrender, amen, the power of God is strong. This is where we're at if the coming of the Lord is this close. The Bible says it because... Uh, the, the son of perdition is being manifest and the spirit of the Antichrist is being let loose in the world. So if that is the case, then the thing that looks like it will challenge the church most is also the thing that will bring out the finest in us and the most anointing and the most power. So I believe the time is ripe for really for there to be a new day, a new season, a new day of anointing, of power. I said it, I've been saying it the last few years, that look for strange conversions to take place. Look for strange conversions. Look for increased operations against the Spirit. Look for miracles to take place. Hallelujah. And we're seeing it. We're seeing it. Hallelujah. All summer long we've had revival and it's just been here. It wasn't anything we did to bring it here. It just was here. Hallelujah. A few years ago, Sister Lefebvre and I stood in line in a Walmart behind a young couple. And uh, 
this couple was pierced and tattooed and uh, had all, you know, the dark clothing and everything on them. Very frightening looking people, younger people. Very scared, in, fierce, intimidating. Like, if I could do all of this body modification that's very painful to me, then I'm not afraid of pain and I'm not afraid of you. And that's kind of the message that comes across. And I stood there behind that couple looking at them thinking, how, God, in this world can the church, can we win these people to the Lord who are so far away from God in such a pagan mindset as this? So far away from God. Here we are. A cultural divide, a generational divide, a whole church way of life that is so anti-opposite of the way that these people live. How can we possibly win them to God? And the answer is, we can't win them, but God can win them. And just because they're inked and pierced doesn't mean that they don't have human needs and human feelings and they love and hurt and experience pain in life the same way anyone else does. And the image they project to the world is a false image that is not real because inside, underneath all that, they're just as human as you and I are. And God knows the heart. And when I look at Chris and Chia Lorenzo, I know the answer. That is a strange conversion. If you've heard the story, if you know the story, I'm not going to take the time to tell it, but that is a strange conversion. And I know the answer. And they are the answer to that generation. They are the ones that can speak to them. And they'll listen where they wouldn't listen to me. They are the medium that will get this message across. And what I want to tell you is that we are never challenged by any of it. Not by any of it. Hallelujah. And the devil may try as hard as he can to get his hold on people like that. But in the end... The church is the one that will challenge him because when Chris, a year ago, said to Chia, look, I don't believe in any of this, but I'll go along with you to your family's church and have our son dedicated. But when he walked in the door of the church, something swept over his soul. It made him want to break out weeping. Hallelujah. He felt the power and the presence of God. And that started that journey and that quest. Hallelujah. So that tells me that all this stuff, hallelujah, that Satan does to roar like a lion and to intimidate the church and to make us feel like we can't is a lie from hell. Hallelujah. And hell is the one that has to fear that we're the ones that are going to profit out of this. That we're the ones that's going to get the advantage. That we're the ones that's going to win. That we, the church, are one of the ones will prevail. Hallelujah. So we're calling the altar call. We're going to sing that new song again. It's a new season. It's a new day. Anyone who wants to come in this altar, stand, pray, or kneel. Worship God. Celebrate the fact 
Hallelujah. That I believe that through Christ I can do anything. That He will make me strong. That I don't have to fear demons and devils. I can put to flight. The Bible said, if one will put a thousand to flight, two shall put ten thousand to flight. Hallelujah. It's not we who have to worry. It's the enemy of the church that has to worry today. Let's say, hallelujah. Praise